Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for October 26th through November 1st. In this week's lesson, we will be discussing the Book of Mormon, chapters 1 through 6. Well, as you can see, my surroundings have changed. For those of you that are watching uh, on video format, I was able to get out of the U.S., uh, I guess, finally, uh, a few days ago. Uh, traveled back to Hong Kong, uh, where I was greeted by a, uh, a COVID test. So I've now undergone three different COVID tests in the past two weeks. Fortunately, I've been negative on all of them. Uh, but Hong Kong, uh, you know, m- many people complain that the U.S. is not taking COVID seriously. Hong Kong is taking it seriously. Uh, before I got on the plane, a COVID test was required. Uh, I, I passed that. It had to be done within 72 hours of me getting on the plane. Once I provided documentation that that had been done, I was able to get on my flight. And then when I arrived uh, in the airport, they ushered us into this terminal that, uh, since nobody's really flying anymore anyway, uh, they had converted into a giant uh, COVID testing and waiting area. Uh, hung around in this terminal for about eight hours, after which they gave me my uh, third negative test in the past two weeks, uh, letting me know my results were negative, after which they uh, released me to come to this hotel, which I had to book for a two-week quarantine. They won't even let me quarantine at the uh, apartment that I'm renting for a very pretty penny uh, here in Hong Kong. I have to come to this hotel. Um, So... They're taking it very seriously here in Hong Kong. Uh, it's uh, kind of ridiculous from my point of view. I think it's probably taking it a little bit too far. One would think since I've passed uh, two COVID tests within the past few days that it would be a pretty good chance that I'm not COVID positive. But nonetheless, they want me to, they're insisting that I quarantine here in this hotel room for two weeks. So looking forward to two weeks from now when I can actually get out of here and uh, get on with my life in Hong Kong. But uh, here I am, and uh, my setup here is not ideal. Uh, I was able to get some of my equipment in here, but uh, still the setup is not what I prefer, so I apologize if the the lighting is not great. I'm sitting down, which is not my uh, preferred means of uh, discussion, but uh, here we are, and uh, glad to be here, and glad that we can uh, be enjoying this lesson together, because today's lesson as we discuss the first six books in the Book of Mormon are, in my mind, some of the most powerful chapters in the Book of Mormon. And you'll see Mormon teaches some very profound lessons, uh, lessons that are important uh, to us uh, in these latter days. He, He gives us warnings about his people and what led to their fall. And we need to be careful that, uh, of course, we as a people uh, do not uh, become victim to the same uh, pride and uh, same reasons that led to the Nephites' downfall, but also on a personal basis. We need to make sure that we, uh, on an individual level, do not fall victim 
to the same traps that uh, that they fell into. And, you know, it's interesting that last week we were basically talking about the high point of Nephite society. Uh, but uh, here we get to their absolute destruction, their ultimate low, uh, as we discuss this week. And it's uh, also interesting that, you know, Mormon, this incredible editor uh, who underwent this inc incredible work of compiling uh, the records of so many generations of Nephite prophets, you know, spent hundreds of pages discussing uh, Alma and Helaman and, and Messiah and all of these great prophets that came before him. But when it can't, comes to his own life, he, he really doesn't have a lot to say, uh, which, is, which is interesting. Um, I think it tells you, you know, probably part of the realities is that he didn't have a lot of time to record his own life because he was busy compiling the others. He was a very busy man uh, leading the Nephite armies, um, fleeing from the Lamanites. Uh, so he might not have had a lot of time to record everything that was going on among his own people, especially uh, as their destruction became imminent. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it, I, I find it very, I've always found it very interesting that uh, Mormon, you know, really only gets seven chapters uh, talking about himself in his own time when he devoted so much time, uh, you know, talking and, and recording the history of, uh, of the, the people that came before him. So, uh, an interesting observation, uh, you know, interesting fact about Mormon and, 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 you know, the priority that he gave in terms of time that was covered. Well, as we begin chapter 1, um, let's, uh, let's start with verse 2. And about the time that Ammon hid up the record unto the Lord, he came unto me, I being about ten years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. And Ammon said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child, and art quick to observe. So it's incredible that Mormon at this very young age was, was tasked with this responsibility from Ammon, the, the record keeper, uh, that, you know, in a distant time, 14 years from now, and man, when you're 10 years old, 14, sure, 14 years sure seems like a, a long ways to go. Uh, he was given this, this responsibility. And, and the reason is that is because uh, Ammon perceives he is a, a sober child, which is an interesting comment, um, and are quick to observe. Um, you know, quick to observe... Uh, you know, was the name of a of a talk of a devotional that Elder Git Bednar gave back in 2005. Uh, very very interesting devotional. A lot of beautiful insights in there uh, as well. Um, but I think you know perhaps because of this talk, perhaps otherwise, that the idea of quick to observe has been uh, kind of lumped in together with this idea of of almost blind obedience. Someone who's quick to observe is someone that follows right 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 away as soon as the uh, instruction, as soon as the command is given. He's very quick to to do what he's been told. And I'm not sure that that's, that's what um, either Elder Bednar meant, and I, I, I don't believe it's what Moroni meant. Because, um, you know, who, who would Mona, Moro, uh, I'm sorry, Mormon meant? Because who would Mormon have been uh, observing in this case? He, he gives the explanation of, you know, a people that have uh, spiritually decrepit. Uh, you know, he doesn't mention any other prophets. He, he mentions Amaron here. Uh, who was the record keeper, but it doesn't really mention anything uh, great or spiritual uh, about Amaron. And so we don't know who, who uh, Mormon, had he been 
you know, blindly obedient to some prophet figure who that prophet figure would have been. He, he doesn't tell us who that would have been. So I'm not exactly sure that that's what uh, quick to observe means as, as Mormon is explaining it. I think rather it means that he has the ability to, to pay attention uh, to spiritual things and then to go where his observations uh, are taking him. Uh, you know, that's, that's one of the great things about Mormon is that as he is recording the hundreds of years of Nephite history that he is uh, tasked with recording, he's able to uh, present it in a way that allows him to highlight uh, those things that he finds to be most important. And what you see, he often will interject uh, with his own explanations and discussions and uh, you know, elaboration upon uh, certain parts of the stories that he is discussing just so that he can make sure that we know uh, that what we are supposed to get out of these stories. So, so he does a lot of his own editor, uh, editorizing uh, throughout the whole book. And those are Mormon's observations. And, and so as, as we talk about Mormon being quick to observe, him observing the things of the Nephites, I think uh, Amorin recognized that he was, he was more than just you know, a smart young man, but he was also observant. His eyes were wide open. And he was able to take uh, the lessons that, that were the appropriate lessons uh, to take. And so he was able to uh, you know, record uh, and, and summarize things in a way that would not just be a, a historical document, uh, but rather would be scripture. That wouldn't just you know, tell people to come later uh, some of the facts about Nephite society, but would rather help those people uh, draw the conclusions uh, that should be drawn to, to help the whoever the reader is to, to, to see and to learn uh, the lessons from Nephite society. And, and Mormon does that in, in such an incredible way all throughout the book, but certainly as he uh, discusses his own life um, and, and, and the time period that he is, uh, I'll say, blessed to live in and the observations that he gets uh, from that time period. Uh, so, so Mormon being quick to observe uh, again, shows that he has the ability to pay attention to spiritual things. And I think that is something we should all be uh, shooting for. Uh, our eyes should always be wide open as we uh, try to observe the world that is, going, uh, that is taking place around us. And, and not, just, you know, not just noticing the historical trends even, or not just noticing what's going on, but, but actually being able to uh, observe the hand of God in these things to observe how God deals with us, both individually and as a people generally, uh, to be able to observe uh, the plan of salvation in action uh, within, this, uh, within this world in which we live. I think that is an important part of the gift of being quick to observe, which we, as Elder Bednar says in his talk, we should all strive for. Um, but again, it means much more than just blind obedience where someone says something uh, and then we go ahead and, and do it. Uh, but instead it means we're paying attention and we can, we can sense the spiritual things and, and, and sense spiritual trends um, and, and recognize the hand of God in all things and we're able to take that uh, where it should be taken. Uh, verse 4 in chapter 1 now. And behold, ye shall take the plates of Nephi unto yourself and the remainder shall ye leave in the place where they are. 
and ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things that ye have observed concerning this people. So, again, Mormon is not commanded to just give a historical uh, recitation of the things that he uh, has seen. It's, it, the focus is not on uh, facts. The focus is not on uh, seeing what exactly is going on um, in terms of just, just telling uh, as if he's some you know, distant uh, textbook writer. <clears throat> uh, but rather, uh, he is commanded to record what these things mean. That's the command that Amorin gives unto him. And so, I think as a result of that, this means that, you know, Mormon's account is, is more than just a historical account. Um, and if we read it as being nothing more than just a historical account, uh, we're really missing the focus. Um, obviously, you know, the Mormon's account should not be hugely contradictory uh, with the, uh, the, the account of archaeologists and historians and others that uh, you know, from our day in a study this time period. Um, no, but, but to my mind, it's it, the whole effort to try to uh, reconcile various parts of the Book of Mormon um, with our current uh, historical understanding of the world at that time, I, I think is in some ways really a, a, a fool's effort. Um, again, obviously there shouldn't be uh, large contradictions, uh, and, you know, we, we should expect there to be some corroboration between Mormon's account and between the Book of Mormon and, and what our scholars of this day are observing. But, you know, my goodness, let's remember that, you know, Mormon is one man. If, if you were to ask me to write a history of the different places that I've lived in, you know, without really getting access to, you know, the internet, maybe a few books that other people similarly tasked have recorded, uh, you know, my account would no doubt be very different from the account that somebody else would write, let alone the account that a uh, historian 1,500 years or even further removed uh, from my record might write. So, you know, Mormon's writing about a very narrow aspect of the world, uh, which is his world, which is, you know, the part that he sees. He's coming at, coming at it from, uh, with his own biases, with his own uh, tendencies and his own inclinations. And, and again, his challenge here from Amaron, or at least what he is tasked with, is to, uh, to give a spiritual account of this people. Uh, all the things that you've observed among this people. He's recording scriptures here. He's not meant to be recording a historical textbook. So, again, I appreciate the works that uh, that many people are doing that, uh, you know, can help us put uh, in, in historical context uh, a lot of the accounts of, of Mormon. And, and those uh, certainly add, add deeply uh, to our understanding. But, you know, from, from my point of view, those that would... Uh, put down the Book of Mormon or not take it seriously simply because uh, they can't find uh, corroborating evidence as they would expect to find. Um, I think that is that is rather short-sighted uh, on their part. Uh, and, and so, you know, Mormon, uh, a very young age, as far as we can tell, he was born in about, uh, based, based on the numbers that I put together, in about 310 A.D., so when he, and, you know, 320 A.D. is Amorin's hiding these things up. He tells him, you know, 14 years from now, I want you to go to this hill. Uh, there you will find these records, and I want you to start recording what you observe among this people. Pretty big task uh, for such a young man. 
and then the uh, and then the the people they break into uh, basically two different camps. Uh, you have the Nephites and you have the Lamanites, and we get, it's important to remember that this is uh, after you know several hundred years following Christ's visit, several hundred years following Christ's visit that that they again break into these camps. So they had gone through a period where there was, remember, no ites among them, uh, where they had all become one people. But now they start distinguishing themselves again. And, you know, how do they actually break up into these uh, two different camps? Uh, is it based on who their actual uh, spirit, uh, who, who their actual ancestors are? Uh, you know, that, that, that's highly, doubt, highly doubtful from my point of view. Um, and I think it was just, you know, I almost political parties, really, as they started to divide up among themselves. And then Nephites and Lamanites uh, were, were two historical rival groups. And so it made sense to, to put those two labels on these two different, uh, on these two different camps with their two different uh, opposing views of the world. But uh, again, they start breaking off into, these, and into their, their own camps, and then they start fighting with each other. Um, and that leads us to verses 13 through 15. But wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land, insomuch that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples, and the work of miracles and of healing did cease because of the iniquity of the people. And there were no gifts from the Lord, and the Holy Ghost did not come upon any because of their wickedness and unbelief. And I, being fifteen years of age, and being somewhat of a sober mind, therefore I was visited of the Lord, and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. I find it interesting here that Mormon talks about how because of the iniquity of the people, and because of their unbelief, that they lost uh, the gifts. They lost the gifts of miracles, the gifts of healing, and the gifts of the Holy Ghost. It, it went away from them uh, because of their wickedness and because of their unbelief. And it's my observation, if I could use that word, that within society today, there is a increase in unbelief, and therefore we are losing these gifts uh, as largely as a society. And I think that happens individually within our lives as well. Um, one of my, I, I think one of the great talks uh, that I know of, uh, at least within the church, is uh, Bruce C. Haven many years ago gave a talk called Love is Blind, and he started the story by talking about a, a, a law school uh, classmate of his that uh, when he was 12, uh, said a prayer that was miraculously answered, and, and, and then later, and, and then said, uh, as he completed the story, said, you know, I don't know if I would do the same thing uh, now that I'm, you know, much older than 12 and I've experienced the world. I don't know if I have the, the same faith uh, that, I, that I used to have. And I, I know I certainly find that to be a struggle uh, in my life. Many of the things when I was young that you know, perhaps I attributed to uh, miracles or attributed another way to belief, I, I, I now have the ability, ability to rationalize away, to find other explanations. And I think part of that comes with maturity, um, that you, you're no longer, you know, childlike uh, in your ignorance and your, in your willingness to believe everything you're told, uh, because certainly we, we do have a tendency to exaggerate some things. But I think with that, in some profound way, comes also a loss of, of innocence and a loss of, of uh, faithfulness, uh, really, in, in a lot of ways. And so, so I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, I think we need to be careful that we don't believe that we're so smart or believe that we have 
explanations or answers for for so much that it leaves no room left for our faith. Uh, that it need, leaves no room left to be awed and to be amazed by the grace and the goodness of God in our lives. Because I think that is a real danger for, for those that are, that are highly educated, uh, that live in this world in which uh, is dominated and by science that has made you know, so many incredible uh, progresses uh, within the past you know, several hundred years, even within the past decades or even few years. Uh, you know, science has done absolutely incredible things. But if we rely so heavily upon science and upon the, the knowledge that man is capable of discovering and, and capable of explaining and understanding, and we give no way for uh, the miracles of God, we, we leave no room left to be awed and to be amazed by his, by his wonder and by his goodness and his love and his mercy towards us. And it seems to me that's, that's kind of what Mormon is getting at here, is these, these people, they no longer have that faith in God. They're, they're no longer trusting on him and calling for him in their, in their time of need, but rather they're, they're seeking their own solutions and their own responses. And as a result, they're losing the gifts of God. But Mormon seems to be a, a pleasant exception because he says when he was 15, he was visited by God and he tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful statement to say he tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. I hope, I hope we all can taste and know uh, of the goodness uh, of our Savior uh, for whatever that means to you. I, I think that uh, the idea of tasting of the goodness of Christ is, is, is so beautiful. It's, it's more than just you have an intellectual concept of it, but that you've actually uh, experienced it yourself. There, there's an exp experiential aspect to the idea of having tasted of something. You, you cannot convey what something tastes like to someone. They just really need to, to try it themselves. They have to experience it themselves. And that's what Mormon is saying that he has experienced. He has personally experienced uh, the goodness of, of Christ. And, and his explanation of himself being a, a, a sober mind, somewhat of a sober mind. Another, the wording here, so, and I have to be careful as a lawyer that I don't get too caught up in the wording, but here he doesn't say he has a sober mind, he says somewhat of a sober mind. Uh, he he kind of qualifies it. But this idea of a sober mind I find to be interesting as well. And, and remember, that's one of the adjectives that uh, Amarin used to describe him, that, that convinced Amarin that Mormon was the right guy to receive. Uh, responsibility for the plates, even at the tender age of 10. And so this idea of soberness, that you have a certain seriousness about you, uh, that you're not uh, caught up in, uh, in, in delusions that come with not being sober. And of course, now when we think of soberness, we think of <clears throat> not being uh, inebriated because of, because of alcohol or other drugs. Uh, you're not subject to these delusions. You have your wits about you. That's what it means to, to be sober. Uh, and, and it's interesting that many would describe religious people or people that are uh, spiritual as being anything but sober, but rather they are subject to brainwashings and delusions, and that's why uh, they can believe the things that they believe. But here, Mormon says the exact opposite. Uh, but because of the soberness of his mind,
because he is quick to observe, as we talked about, because he's able to identify uh, spiritual things. Uh, that, that is the soberness that he is referring to, uh, his, his spiritual soberness. And certainly, as, and I think it goes, he, he, he there stands kind of as an, an, an opposition to those within his society that because of their lack of unbelief don't see the miracles uh, going on around them. They don't, they're not able to accept the healings and the other blessings and gifts that, that God would otherwise give to them because of their own lack of faith. Mormon, on the other hand, he is spiritually sober. He is aware of spiritual things. He is aware of God's hands and God's hand in his life, leading and guiding him and, and providing him uh, the gifts that he needs uh, to accomplish the things that God uh, has, has tasked him with. So I love I love the way Mormon describes these things, the way he describes himself, some of the words he uses. I think there's such, such great insights there. Uh, verse 18 and 19. And these Gadianton robbers who were among the Lamanites did infest the land, and so much that the inhabitants thereof began to hide up their treasures in the earth, and they became slippery because the Lord had cursed the land, that they could not hold them nor retain them again. And it came to pass that there were sorceries and witchcrafts and magics, and the power of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, even unto the fulfilling of all the words of Abinadi and also Samuel the Lamanite. So this idea that they are their, their possessions are cursed and they can't hold on to them, uh, they've become slippery. That's, that's a word that was used uh, back in Helaman, you will recall, as, as, as they had the same curse uh, about them. Uh, but but it's, it's, it's a profound observation it's a, and a profound problem to have. The things that are yours, you cannot hold on to them. Uh, that, that's what we're talking about. Either because, and in this case, it's because they're being stolen by others, by the Gadianton robbers. And I think that's something that we in, in this modern society take for granted. You know, we're, we're, it, it's, to us, it's pretty obvious. If I go out and I, I buy a car... It's, it's my car. I can do with it what I want. Of course, there are certain regulations limiting uh, some of the actions that I can take, but, but, but certainly nobody else is allowed to come in and take it. It's, it's mine. It's my possession. And to lose that sense of security, where if you go out and you work hard to obtain something, that, and then it's just taken from you, uh, what, what bigger frustration could there be or, or, or bigger... A disappointment or disincentive to to actually work or to do anything with your life, uh, knowing that whatever you do, whatever you obtain through your own efforts, might be taken from you is not really yours uh, to keep. And certainly, we could go get political and talk about you know different economic systems that provide incentives. But I want to keep this spiritual because this is. This is scripture. And, and if you take this idea of not being able to hold on to that which is yours and apply it to the spiritual realm, I can't imagine of any, any thought being more frustrating than this idea that my own whatever I have, my own goodness, my own soul, my own thoughts, that even those might not be mine, that I could lose those one day. And whatever progress and improvements I make to myself to become a better person, that, that I could possibly lose that. Uh, what could be more frustrating than that concept? But, but that's what the, the struggle that the Nephites were having. 
And of course, it is Christ that helps us to overcome that struggle because of Jesus Christ. We have certainty as to the things which are ours. That's what the great sealing power provides. It provides that certainty that says, whatever is yours now will be sealed up to you uh, in the eternities to come. Whatever progress, whatever improvements you make to yourself and to, to make yourself better, to make yourself more like Christ, those will be yours permanently. That is a permanent change. And it is only that promise of permanent change that can actually motivate us to change. If I were to try to improve myself and become better, but I, at the same time, I, I was under this fear that in the next life I would be you know, reincarnated as somebody else, or I might lose that progress. Well, what incentive would I have to try to do better? What would my reward be if I'm not able to keep the things that are mine, to keep the progress that is mine? And of course, this uh, applies beautifully to the family as well. Uh, absolutely, my, f my favorite doctrine of the church is this idea that not only is, is my progress and my improvement mine forever, but those that I love the most and those that I care about the most, those relationships, those feelings, those deep emotions that I've bonded with my wife and with my, my parents and with my children, knowing that those are mine forever, I, there's no greater comfort than that. The, the, I can't imagine the fear that would go into believing that if you lose a parent or you lose a child, that relationship is gone forever. I, I can't think of anything more sad. And I've, I've said this before, I, I, I simply refuse to believe in a God that does anything other than make it possible for those relationships and those emotions to be permanent. I can't imagine what type of monster God would have to be to allow us to develop these deep feelings, these deep relationships with each other. And then as soon as the heart stops beating, those all go away and are all for naught. This idea that we have permanence and those things that are ours, those good and beautiful things that we hold on to in, these, in this life, we can keep them. They're not slippery. They're not going to slip through our fingers. They're not going to no longer be ours. But the promise is that they will be ours forever. And therefore, we can work at them. We, can put, we have the incentive to put forth the effort to make ourselves better, to make our relationships with our family better, to make everything around us better because we know that improvement and those relationships are permanent. They are eternal. And that is because of Jesus Christ. And because the Nephites are not able to hold on to their treasures, to those things that are most precious to them, not surprisingly, they start looking for other means. And it's not because Christ isn't willing to bless them, but it's because they're not willing to do what is necessary to make them permanent. They're not willing to repent and they're not willing to change. And so they turn to sorceries and witchcrafts and magics in verse 19 in order to try to make those things permanent. But of course that doesn't work. Christ is the only way in which those things that are most precious to us can ever uh, have permanence. And so we move to chapter 2. Uh, Mormon uh, is appointed the head of the Nephite army uh, at age 15 as we begin chapter 2. 
and a lot of wars ensues. And let's uh, read verses 10 and 11. After several years of war, And it came to pass that the Nephites began to repent of their iniquity, and began to cry even as had been prophesied by Samuel the prophet. For behold, no man could keep that which was his own, for the thieves and the robbers and the murderers and the magic art and the witchcraft which was in the land. Thus there began to be a mourning and a lamentation in all the land because of these things, and more especially among the people of Nephi. It's back to what we were just talking about, this this sense that you can't even keep that which is your own. Uh, There's no bigger frustration out there. Uh, that, that your hard work is, is not permanent, has, has no effect. What incentive is there to do better and to work and to improve yourself and to develop those relationships with those around you if you know that they're only temporary and they're only fleeting? Uh, again, we need permanence, and Christ is the only one that can provide that permanence. Verses 12 through 14. And it came to pass that when I, Mormons, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me, knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. But behold, this my joy was vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin." And they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits, but they did curse God and wish to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle with the sword for their lives. Interesting observations from Mormon here. Um, We all feel sorrow at certain point in our lives. That's a given. That's going to happen in this life. And when that sorrow comes... Uh, the question is, how do we react to it and what lessons do we draw uh, because of that sorrow? Uh, One option is that we can be angry and we can be bitter about it. Uh, And that is the Nephite approach. Um, And and again, when sorrow, as I understand it, is generally comes about when our expectations and our reality are, are, are not the same. And that's always going to happen in our lives. We're going to have hopes and Reality is not going to be consistent with our hopes uh, in certain aspects of our lives. That's always going to happen. And when that happens to the Nephites, they, they get angry about it. They, they curse God and they wish to die. Uh, I mean, that, that's that's the, the, the terrible approach to it. And because you're not adjusting anything and you just remain in your sorrow. Uh, but that's one option. Uh, another option is to give up hope. So if... Uh, our reality is not meeting our expectations, uh, then, we, then we adjust our expectations. We give up hope. Um, and, and certainly I know people like that, they, they don't really dare to hope for anything anymore. Just kind of going through life in a, in a zombie-like trance. Um, in zombie-like trance. Uh, certainly not uh, the, the best uh, approach. Uh, then, then the third option is that you try to be better. You try to raise your reality to meet your expectations. Uh, but there's obviously problems with that. One is that you can justify a lot by, by doing that. And, and we all know people uh, that do that, that, you know, to them, the ends always justify the means because they're trying to get their reality uh, to meet their expectations. And then that's the only source of comfort uh, that they can take is when their reality meets their their expectations. Um, but of course, another problem is our reality is never going to meet our expectations. We're always going to have areas in which we can, which we're going to, to fall short of our expectations because 
there's so much in life that we cannot control. And, of course, it's my belief that the world was set up that way. God doesn't want us to be in control of everything. It's impossible for us to be in control of everything. And so we need to learn to turn things over to him. And that is the fourth approach, which is to come unto Christ. Because when we come unto Christ, he lifts our expectations, for one. You know, we, we dare to believe that we can inherit eternal life with our heavenly parents, that we can return to live with them in a place that is even better than here. How dare we believe that? But that's what Christ does is he lifts our expectations. And for those that are not quick to observe, those that are not uh, spiritually sober and do not have eyes to see, it seems insane that we would wish for and, and have expectations of some better life to come. But that's what Christ does. He raises our expectations and then he raises us to meet them. We don't do it ourselves, but he lifts us up to meet those expectations. And that's what Mormon was hopeful that they would do, that they would repent and come unto Christ, but they did not. And so their sorrow did not bring them the progress that it otherwise could have brought them. Their sorrow did not lead them unto Christ, but it led them unto more sorrow because they chose to curse God and wish to die. Uh, that's, that's not the best approach to, to sorrow. That's not the best way to handle things when our expectations don't meet reality. But that's what the Nephites chose to do. Much to Mormon's dismay, he was hopeful that they would come unto Christ so that he could lift their expectations and lift them uh, at the same time. Uh, but but that's, not, that's obviously not what happened. Uh, then we go to verse 19. And woe is me because of their wickedness, for my heart has been filled with sorrow because of their wickedness all my days. Nevertheless, I know that I shall be lifted up at the last day. So here Mormon perfectly demonstrates the thing that we were just talking about. He is experiencing sorrow because he had this expectation that his people would repent and come unto Christ, but they did not. And of course, that is beyond his control. There's nothing he could have done about it. But that was his reality. But rather than being sorrow and bitterful about it, he turned to Christ. And as he concludes the verses, I, this, this verse, I know that I shall be lifted up at the last day. He is certain in his salvation, even though he's deeply sorrowful because, because his own people uh, will not turn to Christ and choose salvation. Uh, so we go to chapter 3. Um, it starts off with you have uh, 10 years of, of non-fighting. So here, kind of in the, Mormon's in the middle of Mormon's life, he gets this break from the fighting. And it's likely that uh, those were an important 10 years in terms of his uh, gathering and preparing the records uh, that, that we're enjoying today as, as the Book of Mormon. There's another eight-year period of peace that certainly was critical as well. But uh, most likely, it would have been during these, these years of peace that, uh, that God blessed Mormon with that he was able to go about uh, the effort of preparing the plates. And I think... Uh, you know, a, a good spiritual lesson for us too. If you're at a place in your life where everything seems to be going well, then you better, you got work to do. Got to take advantage of those times. Uh, whatever it is that you, that you want to do, whatever it is that you, whatever spiritual progress you want to make, whether it's, you know, recording things in your journal, getting family history work done, uh, reconciling with, with old family and with friends, uh, preparing a, a video lessons for the Book of Mormon like I've been doing. Uh, wh whatever it is, if you're in a moment of peace and everything's going well in your life, take advantage of that. Uh, take advantage of that to get stuff done. Um, and so Mormon, uh, you know, 
most likely takes advantage of this time to get things done, but it doesn't, it doesn't last very long. Um, uh, verses 9 through 12 in chapter 3. Uh, they so they've gone to they've had more wars after this ten year this, this ten year period of no fighting ends uh, and then they have more wars and uh, the Nephites do pretty well uh, and that leads us to these verses uh, excuse me verses nine through twelve uh, and now because of this great thing which my people the Nephites had done they began to boast in their own strength and they began to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren who had been slain by their enemies. And they did swear by the heavens and also by the throne of God that they would go up to battle against their enemies and would cut them off from the face of the land. It came to pass that I, Mormon, did utterly refuse from this time forth to be a commander and leader of this people because of their wickedness and abomination. Behold, I had led them notwithstanding their wickedness. I had led them many times to battle and had loved them according to the love of God which was in me with all my heart. And my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. So Mormon leads them to a victory, and as a result, they become prideful. Uh, and, and they take oaths that they are not permitted to take. They start swearing by the throne of God and, and start seeking for, for vengeance. And it's at that point that Mormon says, you know what, these people are, are without hope. And Mormon refuses to lead them uh, going forward. Uh, verse 12, you can just... This is what I love about these chapters. You can just feel the emotions. These chapters are just dripping with, with Mormon's heartache as he talks about his people and the love that he had for them and, and the sorrow that came because they didn't repent. And, you know, anyone that has a child that they're concerned about that is refusing to repent or someone else in their family uh, I'm sure you can relate to Mormon and his feelings there. His Mormon challenges to keep his hopes up. And you can, we can see he, he later says that he repents of this decision to, to no longer lead them. Uh, but it was, he was just so frustrated. He couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore. He, he's showing his human side to us here, Mormon. And, it, and it's so beautiful and so powerful and, and so emotional. He's, he talks about how he had loved them uh, with all of his heart. And his soul had been poured out in prayer unto them, unto God for them, but it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. He was so disappointed, so heartbreaking for him uh, that they had chosen to reject Christ, reject the one source uh, that could uh, provide them that which they are looking for. Let's go down to verse 20 in chapter 3. And these things doth the Spirit manifest unto me, therefore I write unto you all. And for this cause I write unto you, that ye may know that ye must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yea, every soul who belongs to the whole human family of Adam, and ye must stand to be judged of your works, whether they be good or evil. So Mormon, having kind of given up on his people at this point, starts talking to those who will, who will read the record. Um, and he tells us, he says, look, you're going to be held accountable there is a sense of permanence to your actions. Uh, you know, so we talked a few minutes ago how, how important it was to, to have this sense of permanence uh, in everything that we do, knowing that ours will be ours forever. Well, th there's a, a negative aspect to that, and that is the mistakes that we make will also be ours forever. They will have permanent consequences as we will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And as we talked about last week, when we're brought before the judgment seat of Christ, it's not a question of, you know, what 
things on a checklist did you accomplish? Or, you know, scales balancing good versus bad. The judgment from before Christ is not a question of, did you do good or did you do bad? Because we are going to do bad. We all make mistakes. The question is, what relationship did you have with Christ? Or as we talked about last week, did you take upon yourself the name of Jesus Christ? Are you his? Does he have claim over you because you have taken upon yourself his name because you have entered into covenants with him and because uh, you have become his part of his group you have his uh, protection around you Um, and and that's the permanence uh, that we all are seeking for is that permanent relationship with Jesus Christ because that relationship makes everything else that is good in our lives also permanent So we move to chapter 4. Let's start with verses uh, 4 and 5. And it was because the armies of the Nephites went up unto the Lamanites that they began to be smitten. For were it not for that, the Lamanites could have no power over them. But behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked, and it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. For it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men unto bloodshed. So the Nephites had had success in chapter 3. They start boasting of their strength, and then they start... Uh, becoming the aggressor. Rather than defending themselves against Lamanite aggression, they start becoming aggressive. And because of this, they lose the spirit. And, uh, and, and they start taking action. And, and, and of course, they, 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 they lose. Uh, they, don't do, they don't do well because uh, they, have no, they don't have any protection from God. They're relying on their own strength. And when you're in the aggressor, relying on your own strength, uh, most of the time that doesn't turn out very well. We need to rely on Christ. And, you know, another great observation, it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. Uh, no, God doesn't actively punish the wicked, but he takes away their protection or they no longer qualify for their protection uh, because of their wickedness. And so because of that, uh, they're left to their own devices. And as a result, uh, things don't usually go very well for them. Um, And so the battles continue. Uh, The Lamanites, uh, in their victories, began offering up, and this is terrible, human sacrifice, offering up the women and the children as human sacrifices uh, for the victories uh, that they get over the Nephites. And, of course, that makes the Nephites even more angry. Uh, So as we talked about how uh, nothing that was theirs they could keep Now they can't even keep their wives and they can't even keep their children because they're being sacrificed uh, by the Lamanites. We don't get details as to why they're offering these sacrifices. Are they offering them up as part of the the wizardry and sorcery that that was prevalent throughout the land? Uh, Did they have pagan gods that they were offering them up to as sacrifices? Or were they really just simply sacrificing them just for the sake of of bloodshed and for aggregating uh, and tormenting? Uh, their Nephite enemies. We're not given this detail, um, but uh, you know, horrible, horrible scene of what is what is going on here. Um, and then towards the end of chapter four, we get another uh, eight-year gap of peace, um, and that ends in uh, 375 A.D. Uh, when there is uh, another war. Um, and at this time, you know, as, as we talked about, how how Mormon was probably born in about 310 A.D. Uh, he's he's 65 at this point. Uh, he he's a pretty old guy 
at this point. Of course, I say that because I'm only 41. I apologize to those of you that are 65 and feeling young, but he's no spring chicken. Let's put it that way. Uh, he's 65 years old as as these uh, wars uh, start up again following this eight-year period of peace. Um, and, and so the wars start up again, and we get more bloodshed, and that leads us to chapter 5, uh, verse 1. And it came to pass that I did go forth among the Nephites and did repent of the oath which I had made that I would no more assist them. And they gave me command over their ar again of their armies, for they looked upon me as though I could deliver them from their afflictions. Uh, several interesting notes here. Of course, one that Mormon repents and he changes his mind because uh, he wants to help them. You know, even, even though he's at least 65 at this point, he wants to do what he can to help his people. Uh, you know, it shows what a, what a great soul uh, Mormon was. But also the observation that his people look to him as though he could deliver them. Uh, and, and I think it's clearly what Mormon is getting at here is that, you know, they're looking to the wrong place. They should be looking at God to deliver them, but instead they're looking to him. They're lo He's just a man. He has no ability to deliver them, especially if they're not going to do the things that he's telling them to do, which is to repent and turn unto Jesus Christ. Um, and, and we see that in verse 2. But behold, I was without hope, for I knew the judgments of God which should come upon them. For they repented not of their iniquities, but did struggle for their lives without calling upon that being who created them. So even though they're struggling for their own lives, they refuse to turn to the God who gave them life. They refuse to repent. And so because of that, Mormon is without hope for them. He knows that their time is up. He knows that uh, this is not going to end well for his people because of that gift of his where he is quick to observe. Uh, verses 10 and 11. And now behold, this I speak unto their seed and also to the Gentiles who have care for the house of Israel that realize and know from whence their blessings come. For I know that such will sorrow for the calamity of the house of Israel. Yea, they will sorrow for the destruction of this people. They will sorrow that this people had not repented, that they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. So Mormon leads them again, but he knows that it's not going to work. He knows that they're going to be destroyed. And so he begins to turn his attention to you and me. Those of us that, in verse 10, who know from whence their blessings come. I hope that describes you and me. I hope we always keep in mind the source of our blessings, because that's who Mormon is writing to. And then I love in the imagery in verse 11. They will sorrow that this people had not repented, that they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. These, these beautiful Nephite people that had been so frustrated because their, their lives, they couldn't keep their possessions and they're always running around trying to you know, flee from their enemies who are, seem to be constantly attacking them. It seems like Mormon is setting up that all that they wanted was place of security, a place of comfort, a place of peace, a place of belonging. And they would have had that in the arms of Jesus. But they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't do those simple things that would lead them to Jesus, that would qualify them to be clasped in the arms of Jesus. Instead, they're left to their own devices, their own efforts to find peace and security and stability and permanence. And of course, they can't find it because it's not there, at least not in the places that they're looking for it. 
the only place where they could have gotten it is in the arms of Jesus. Uh, but, but they're not willing to go there. Verse, uh, and so Mormon continues to describe uh, uh, verse 14. And behold, they shall go unto the unbelieving of the Jews, and for this intent shall they go, that they may be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that the Father may bring about through his most beloved, his great and eternal purpose in restoring the Jews or all the house of Israel to the land of their inheritance, which the Lord their God hath given them unto the fulfilling of his covenant. So he's talking about here where these records are going to go. And it's going to go to you and me so that we can know uh, of God's great and eternal purposes. And he talks about in restoring the Jews and the, the house of Israel to their land of their inheritance. Look, the way I read this, I... I'm not going to say I don't care, but, you know, whether or not the Jews actually get Jerusalem back or or whatever that that process looks like, I'm not, that's not me. I'm, I'm not really that concerned about. But where this does relate to me is to the extent that the Jews are the covenant people, the house of Israel, those that struggle with God, or those that turn their lives over to God. We have our own promised land. We have our own land of inheritance that has been promised to us. And that is not some, you know, piece of dirt somewhere in the Middle East or in the Americas or anywhere else. That's at the side of my heavenly parents. That's the land I want to return to. And the promise of the Book of Mormon is that if I will keep my covenants, then I will get there side by side, holding hands with my beautiful wife and with my children. I believe that my parents are on their way there. And I believe that when I get there, they're going to be there waiting for me as well. So as, as I read these promises to the Jews of the land of their inheritance, I guess my own selfish nature is to put my, interject my own, my own situation in there. My own promised land, my own promised land of inheritance that I am striving for, because that's where I want to be. And that is the message of the Book of Mormon, is Mormon is trying to, you know, he's two chapters away from ending his record keeping. keeping. And in, Moroni, in Mormon chapter 8, it turns over to Moroni. So we're at the end of Mormon's record. He's starting to sum up. He's starting to, to highlight those few things that he wants to make sure that we are getting. And he's telling us right here, this is the purpose of the Book of Mormon. That we'll believe in Christ. That we'll believe that God keeps his promises. And that we have a land of our inheritance waiting for us. If we will but come unto Christ. If we will be grasped in his arms, he will lead us safely there. Verses 16 through 18. For behold, the Spirit of the Lord hath already ceased to strive with their fathers, and they are without Christ and God and the world, and they are driven about as chaff before the wind. They were once a delightsome people, and they had Christ for their shepherd. Yea, they were led even by God the Father. But now, behold, they are led about by Satan. Even as chaff is driven before the wind, or as a vessel is tossed about upon the waves, without sail or anchor, without anything wherewith to steer her, and even as she is, so are they. So in contrast to being grasped in the arms of Christ, that place of safety and security and certainty, because they refuse to come unto Christ, they are like chaff in the wind. 
They are like those small seeds that is left over when you, you, you roll wheat in your hand. And if you blow it, it goes wherever the wind takes it. Or they're like a vessel tossed upon the waves. You know, when you're in a boat and just a vessel and you're not able to steer, you go wherever the waves take you. You don't have any control. And as I present this lesson, it seems that that is the very clear theme that is developing. If you want control over your life, if you want permanence over the things that you have gained, if you want safety and if you want security, there is only one place that can be found, and that is within the arms of Jesus Christ, within his protection, within the covenants that we make with him. That is our only source of safety and permanence and security. Without those covenants, without the promises of Christ, without entering into his arms and his protection, we are left to the buffetings of Satan. We're left to wherever the winds will blow us. Whatever happens in this crazy world, we have no control over unless we come unto Jesus Christ, he who has ultimate control. And of course, life's not always going to go the way we want it to go. It's not supposed to. That's not what it's designed for. The purpose of this life is designed to see whether or not we will choose to come unto Christ or whether or not we're going to try and do things our own way. Whether or not we will accept the holy gift of Jesus Christ, his atonement, his promise of safety and security and permanence, or whether or not we will look to other sources, Sources, of course, that will ultimately fail, as the Nephites sadly demonstrate. And for that, we go to chapter 6. The Nephites and the Lamanites gather for a final battle at a place called Cumorah. And at this time, Mormon's about 74 years old. And uh, the Nephite army is about to be destroyed. Uh, certainly, the numbers here are most likely uh, exaggerations. Um, when we talk about... Uh, you know, the tens of thousands that, that are being destroyed. I don't believe that Mormon was actually out there, you know, keeping numbers. You know, for in Chinese, whenever you say 10,000 something, uh, uh, you know, when you say yuan, which in Chinese means 10,000, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the number that follows 9,999. It usually just means a lot. And I think that's what Mormon is doing here. When he talks about the tens of thousands that that that, uh, that fall. I don't think he's actually giving accurate numbers. I think he's just saying there was a lot. It was tragic. It was a disaster. It was the worst thing that you can possibly imagine. Especially the tender-hearted Mormon who'd served his whole these people his whole life, who who had been spent his entire all of his time on earth trying to convince them to repent but they would not do it. And so they are destroyed and were left with verses 17 through 20. O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if ye had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, ye are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it that ye could have fallen? But behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows can, cannot bring your return. 
So as we end this lesson with the Nephite destruction, with Mormon losing his fair ones, with them being gone and unable to return. I mean, Mormon's 74 at this time, at, at least when he's recording this. He knows that his time is limited. He knows he's not going to be around here much longer. But again, it's this idea of permanence. These people are gone. Not only physically. Of course, their you know, physical destruction is a tragedy. But more more sorrow, I think, comes from Mormon because of their, their spiritual destruction. They are gone because they refuse to come unto Christ. So they are left to whatever happens. They're like vessels on a sea. They're like chaff in the wind. They'll go wherever <clears throat> nature takes them. They're left to subject to the consequences of their own mistakes. And we all will be unless we come unto Jesus Christ, unless we take upon ourselves his name, unless we come into his arms and allow him to grasp us in his arms, that we can be with him, that those things that we've got in this life that are so good and beautiful that God has given to us, they can be permanent. They don't have to slip through our fingers. They can be ours forever if we come unto Christ, if we come unto his safety and the security that only he provides, if we take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ, all of the beautiful things in our life will be ours forever. But if we don't come unto him and if we don't repent, then we're subject to whatever happens naturally. And we don't have the protection of Jesus Christ. And as the Nephite story tragically illustrates, whatever happens naturally is not pretty. The natural world is a difficult and a sad place. And if we're going to try and get through it on our own, chances are we're going to fail. And we're all going to confront sorrow and disappointment and rejection because that's what this life is designed for. It's part of the plan. But our part of the plan has to be that we will accept Christ, take upon us his name, enter into his arms of safety, where there is permanence, where there is hope, and where there is peace. And I pray that we will all do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.